good to be before you and uh, continue to bring God's word uh, to you um, as a family and as a church. We're so glad that you're here. Um, and if you're dialing in online, we're so glad that you've chosen to do that as well. Um, uh, so here we are, right? We are in the midst of a layered time of despair. Um, all of a sudden, when I say that, I am transported to the Princess Bride, to the pit of despair, which I, if you know me, you know I can't go a week or two without a Princess Bride reference. So um, if you now have an albino in your head, you're welcome. Um, and if you don't, repent and watch Princess Bride. Nonetheless, we are in a time of great despair, right? It didn't Aaron uh, capture it greatly? Uh, that we got, a, we got a, not a storm in the Gulf, we've got two, um, which apparently could form a superstorm called the Fujiwara effect, whatever that is, um, where they come together and do all these crazy things. And um, we've got this, this virus that could kill us. That's a true and right thing, um, that it actually could kill us. We could catch something that could cause our harm. Um, this is a time of great despair, of great anxiety, of great worry, of great fear. Um, we've got murder hornets in 2020. That happened. Um, we, like our president got impeached earlier this year. Did you know that was still this year? Um, there's all kinds of things that are stirring us up um, in so many different ways that maybe we, like, they're all compacted in this year, and it's just been crazy, right? There's riots over racial inequality. There's then the politicization, I don't know if that's a word, but we're going to politicize uh, human dignity, uh, which is a thing that's happened that you can't really get behind, a thing called Black Lives Matter because you have to also be behind blue lives and all lives. And it's politicized. You can't even really get behind the image of God in people without splitting the room, which should be the most basic thing that we can get behind as Christians is to support and love the image of God in people. No matter what color they are, that should be something that should unite us, but instead that, it, that too has become divisive. Watch your Facebook feed or get off. I can tell you just like out of personal experience, I'm not saying I'm not prescribing this for you, but as out, of, out of personal experience, I got off because it was depressing me. And I didn't know it was depressing me until I got off of Facebook. And you're like, oh, wow, that's actually affecting my mood. I need to get away from all of that. And I'm on because I love you and I want to hear what most of you have to say. Most of you have to say. Most of you have to say. Um, but there are some, th some parts of it where it's like, man, it's just not worth it for our souls. We need to disconnect. We need to go spend that time being with the Lord or with my family or just not caring as much as I care about the opinions of others. See, we're all in this, right? And, and here's the thing. Like, we've got conspiracy theories called plandemic, and then scamdemic came along. If you don't know what that one is, I don't know, Google it. Um, we've got the issues of masks. Right? This is all starting to, pre like, this was funny about a minute ago, but as we continue to keep talking about it, no one's laughing anymore. Because you and I both know that depending on if you laugh or if you don't laugh or if you agree or if you disagree, you're going to lose a friend. See, cancel culture has somehow overcome Christian culture in the church. Oh, and one of those things you disagree, I'm out. And we've got friends, by the way. You've got friends that are, that, are, that are caught up in this whirlwind of despair and depression and anxiety and fear. We have them. And if you're privy to those friends that are caught up into all of that, implore them. This is not the most important thing. It is not important. Masks are not important enough to break fellowship over. They're not. I mean, if it does not come, come near to the deity of Christ, it's not important. 
But yet, this series on eternity helps us remember there are certain things that we need to disagree on and be okay with disagreeing on. We've talked about some of them. We'll continue to talk about many more in the weeks to come. But today, I want to kind of speak specifically to this despair that we have. And what is it that will give us some hope in a time of great despair? And I want to, ta- I want to kind of tackle that by ta- talking about something that has a lot of weight and a lot of gravity to it. And I'll, I'll be really candid with you. I rewrote my sermon yesterday because what I had written just didn't land. Didn't land with us. Didn't land with me. And so I do want to ask the question, though, what's going to happen when we die? Have you asked that? During this time of great anxiety and great fear, have you asked that about my, I've asked that, like what happens? Last night I went to a dinner and I literally thought I was having a heart attack. There's all pain up in here and I've never had that before. And I was like, oh dear Lord, I'm going home. What's going to happen? What would give me hope in that moment? What would give you hope in that moment? See, for the last two weeks, we've talked about being ready for Jesus' return. And that's good and that's right. But are we ready for our uncertain time or our certain death? Are we ready? What would give us hope to be ready? And that's what I want to talk about because we've talked about having the wisdom uh, of a lifetime of readiness and a lifetime of preparation. And today I want to recenter us on the question, what happens when we die? And next week we're going to talk about what happens when Jesus does return. He will resurrect us. He will judge us. He will do all sorts of things. And then we'll finish off in a couple of weeks when we talk about the new heavens and the new earth, the actual eternity part of the eternity series. That's what we'll talk about as we finish. And then after that, after Labor Day, we're going to turn the page, be in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as we uncover uh, the Sermon on the Mount together for some time. But that's where we're headed. That's what we're up to today. And today we are using Luke 16 as this jumping off point to really uncover all sorts of answers to questions that I believe are deep in our souls. And so let me just kind of get to these questions. And we're going to ask these common questions, and we're going to answer them according to the Scriptures. Now, I want to warn you, we're going to answer them according to the Scriptures, not according to our culture, and certainly not according to the Christian subculture, which is somehow more damaging than our culture about what happens when we die. We need to understand what the Scriptures say about what will happen to all of us if Jesus tarries in his return. But I'm asking these questions and answering them according to the Bible. And I will warn you, that is going to cause you to challenge your assumptions about how God works. And we'll end with, what do we do with those assumptions here today? Question one, what happens when we die? What happens, oh believer? What happens, follower of Jesus, when you die? We can be assured of this out of this parable of the rich man and Lazarus that we will be transported. Like, I didn't know this really until uh, this week. Like, we get transported by angels into the presence of Jesus. This idiom of Abraham's bosom, as your Bible might say, or Abraham's side, is an idiom for intimacy with God Almighty, with his people from long ago. And so let's just read it in Luke 16, 22. How do we know that we're going to have presence with the Lord? The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, his side. Now the rich man died and he was buried, and we'll talk about the rest of that, right? So this, this poor man, who is clearly someone who is a follower of Jesus in this parable, gets transported by the angels and gets put next to Abraham's 
side. It is an idiom for intimacy with God. We have that assurance, but we also have the assurance of what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. What did he say? This is one of the most assuring and comforting passages in the Bible. Why? Because we know that this man is known as a thief, and he deserves to be condemned. And Jesus, looking at him, says, today you will be with me in paradise in Luke 23. There is an assurance there, not based on the goodness of someone called a thief, but based on the promiser of eternal life that today, surely today, you will be with me in paradise. That is a great assurance for all believers who would look upon the risen Jesus for hope and help, no matter what age we're in, but certainly here and now. You see, this presence with God, this immediate full presence with God is something for which the saints longed. Paul says in Philippians 1, as he's talking about his fruitful ministry, and he's Somehow, like you read it and you think he's got a choice whether he can be transported to heaven or if he's going to stay here, but he doesn't. But he kind of is in this moment. He says this in verse 23 and 24. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Isn't that yours? Especially now, like there are, there's much of me that's like, man, I just want to go be with Jesus and enough with this. There's part of me that longs for that, although I will tell you, probably disproportionately, but as I've had kids, I'm like, I'm not ready yet. I want to experience them a little bit longer. I want to grow them up a little bit longer. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And I wonder if there's in me some disproportionate hope in all of that. But nonetheless, there is a desire for us to depart and be with Jesus. That's a good and right thing. But what's better is what, Je- what Paul continues to say, right? For that is far better. It's far better to go be with the Lord. If I could do that, I would go do that. But since I've got work to do, basically, but to remain in the flesh here is more necessary. Why? For Paul? No, for the saints. See, I want you to notice something. The thing that's going to get us through, that's going to get us through kind of wanting to escape unto heaven, is understanding that there's other people here that depend on us spiritually, not just physically, but spiritually, that if you read that whole passage, what you would find is that Paul's hope is that he would have a fruitful labor a fruitful labor in the ministry. And I would say this, you have a fruitful labor in the ministry. Whether you are ever stand on a stage or not, God has put before you people to which you are called to minister. That's what we've been talking about the last two weeks, right? His devotion, though, what keeps him effective on the earth, though he would long to escape and go to heaven, what keeps him effective is his devotion to the holiness and the maturity of the saints. I want you to get that. He is not just uh, uh, focused on his own holiness, not just focused on his own maturity. He is focused on the holiness and the maturity of others. Are you? See, that's a lot of what's going to make this journey bearable is seeing other people come to know the Lord, grow in the Lord, and have and share in the same hope that you have in the Lord for all of eternity. It's not just about us. It's about the maturity and holiness of of others. So we have a promise that we will be with Jesus, that we would long, though, to be with him, but at the same time, remain here. But that's for believers, isn't it? That's not unbelievers. See, the rich man would tell us and shows us that there's a destiny for those that do not follow Jesus that is far worse. That, no, everyone doesn't go to heaven when we die. Everyone doesn't get promised eternal life with Jesus, but instead those that would reject grace, those that would reject the author of life, those that would reject the one on the cross, the one that was buried, risen, and ascended on high, 
if we continue on and persist in our rejection of condemnation that God didn't come to give us, but to bring us out of, we will suffer a worse fate. And you might be thinking, okay, well, like, dude, we're like here in the midst of a pandemic. You can't say that, like, this doesn't apply to us. And dare I say that the entire New Testament was written to people just like you and me. And there was warning after warning after warning to those that would come into the house of the Lord to not fall away. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But what happens, right, what happens when an unbeliever uh, dies and they do not accept or believe or follow in Jesus? It says it right here, verses 23 and 26. This is the the understanding of what happens when a non-believer dies. And in Hades, not a good place, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, the rich man, And he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us, all this between us, you and a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from you to us. There is a permanent fixture of separation between God and those that want that separation. Those that do not follow Jesus will be sent to a place called Hades where there is great anguish, great pain, and they would long for just a little bit of relief. This place would be a place of mental and physical torment. Just some of the language we've looked at the last couple of weeks, that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's emotional and physical pain that we cannot describe. That the Bible describes as these symbols of outer darkness. That there's an absence of light, but also an absence of mercy and goodness and virtue. They have a longing to be comforted, and they can see the satisfaction far off. They wish they could get to it, but they can't. I mean, it's like every movie where the, the, the hero is just reaching for the sword to be able to take care of his enemy, and that sword's just a little bit out of reach, right? And eventually they start to get to it. That will not be the case. The instrument of comfort, of relief, will be far off, and you will not be able to get to it. It is the place that Jesus says it's where the worm won't die and a fire that will not be quenched. It is eternal physical torment. And I love what one pastor had to say about this when he was asked, are these symbols, is it just a bunch of symbols of fire, of unquenchable fire, and where the worm uh, doesn't die, and outer darkness, and weeping, and gnashing of teeth, is this just a symbol? And the pastor said, yes, it is just a symbol which represents something far worse. Let's not make light of the eternal destiny of millions of people. Millions. It is the place not only where you do, where you, this is how I've kind of come across what I believe about Hades. It's the place where not only you get what you want, but everyone else gets what they want too. I used to think that it was just an individual suffering uh, that we'll talk about here in a minute, but instead I believe it's a communal suffering where everyone gets what they want, just like Galatians 5 says. 
And so if you talk about and look at Galatians 5 and the deeds of the flesh, it starts off with some pretty crazy stuff, right? Like sexual morality and things like that, like using another to gratify themselves. And that's a place where that never ends. It's an idolatry of control, and I think of slavery. It's an idolatry of comfort, which you will not be able to attain. It's an idolatry of power, where you misuse the authority, just like the devil did. He is the father of lies and the one that came to kill, steal, and destroy. That will be his realm forever and ever. It's where divisions, conflict upon conflict, will reign. Strife, enmity, jealousy, these are all deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. Can you see it playing out in this place of torment? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, and all the rest. Hell is where flesh and sin are unleashed. And worse, God will be there and you will not be able to access him. You might say to me right now, you just say God is in hell? He's omnipresent, right? Meaning all places. Revelation 14, 9 would say this about what it looks like for the non-believer who worships the beast in the, in the end times. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead and on its hand, he will also, listen y'all, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The lamb will be there. That's Jesus. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Y'all, there is a great choice before us. We will either be people who believe that Jesus drank this cup of wrath on our behalf, or we will go to the end in our deaths and have to drink that cup of wrath on our own. There is no middle ground. We will either believe that Jesus took God's wrath on the cross, or we will take God's wrath forever and ever And that's what the scriptures teach about heaven and hell and about where we go. And so we do have a great hope in Christ who died for us. And guess what? Side note. Let me just pull over here as a side note to the sermon. Here's what's not going to happen when you go to heaven. You're not going to turn into an angel. Okay? You see this on Facebook when somebody dies and very well-meaning, they go, heaven gained another angel. No, they didn't. There is no angels being given or lost in heaven. They instead are a fixed number, a third of which rebelled with Satan, two-thirds of which are in heaven worshiping God forever and ever. We instead, the Bible says, will judge angels. So don't diminish God's work in our life by saying we somehow transform into another being. The only only being we're going to be transformed into is in the image of Jesus. That was my side note, now I'm back. But you ever wonder why these kinds of hard things are in the Bible? Like I knew it was going to be heavy today. You're talking about really hard stuff, right? Our kids in the room, you're probably thinking, my gosh, I don't think my kid wants to hear this, and I definitely don't want to. Yes, yes, we do. Let's not, let's not apologize. Let's not hide them from the hard truths of this life or the next. Let's then, though, explain it to them. That God is good and righteous and just in the midst of all these things that we may disagree with. 
You ever wonder why these types of things are in the Bible? Why, so, why there are so many warnings in the book to believers? This is a book written to believers. You ever wonder why there's so many warnings in here to believers about these types of things? It's because God knows that within the household of God, right here, right now, and in every church that will gather both online and in person throughout the world, there are people sitting here that do not believe in Jesus that do not truly and genuinely follow Jesus. And here's how we know who they are. Because suffering is coming for each one of us. And suffering will sniff out authentic faith. Isn't that what happens with the great tribulation? Isn't that what happens at the end of all this in Revelation? All the things that you kind of don't want to think about with the dragon and the beast and the, and the, and the harlot. and I mean, just uh, four horsemen and the, and the trumpets and the bowls and the lampstand. I mean, just... The stuff that you don't want to think about, the stuff that we need to think about, we need to wrap our mind around and as, as best we can. I mean, Oscar said it best, right? You are infinite and we are finite. And that also has, pertains not just to the, the span of our life, but to the capabilities of our minds. God knows that there are people in here that are trying their best to look like a Christian. Friends, looking like a Christian will not do in the end. Suffering will come and it will, it will sniff out our allegiances and we will be tested. First Peter 4 talks about this. Read it. And the question will come, will we bow to comfort? Will, we, will, will the, the gospel kind of grow in our hearts only to be snuffed out by the cares and the comforts of this world? Will we bow to getting our way from God? Will we, or will we be preserved to the end and persevere to the end in full faith and assurance of the goodness of God? And I just, like, is this you? Do you feel like ejecting in the midst of this time of despair? God, you're not answering my prayer. And on top of all this, we've got the Fujiwara effect coming down on us. Like we need that. And here's the thing. If you look at the news, many of us right now are taking a little bit of a sigh of comfort because it's probably not going to hit us like they said it was going to hit us some four or five days ago. But Louisiana's in trouble. They do have probably two bad storms headed their way. We'd be praying for them. And not just breathe a sigh of relief, but care for humanity next door. You feel like ejecting. I would just like plead with you, if you feel like ejecting, if you feel like you can't trust God because you can't comprehend what he's up to, come and talk to somebody. Don't eject without reasoning through it. There have been plenty of saints over time, C.S. Lewis, uh, Ravi Zacharias, many others that have reasoned through many of the same questions and doubts that you have, that have written books, given resources, so that we can reason through these things together. And I would just say, if you are thinking about walking away from Jesus, you have no hope except in him. I can guarantee you the world system of how this thing all works is no better and, dare I say, far worse than the God of creation, the God of hope, the God who came to rescue us from sin and death and condemnation, not to give it to us, but because we'd already earned it. That's question one. What happens when we die is clear. Rich man and Lazarus make it clear. We are either immediately into the presence of Jesus or we are immediately in the presence of pain and torment. So some may ask the question, okay, well, I, I can see here that there may be a second chance, though, after death, that there's at least some sort of a way that there's a communication from those in Hades to those at Abraham's side that maybe there's a second chance here after death that maybe we can kind of get into heaven post-mortem. 
No, friends. With the rise of sentimental and cultural Christianity has come the dismissal of difficult passages. They're too hard, they're too harsh, and they're met with, well, my God would never do that. Well, my God would never send good people to hell. I can assure you, friends, he will not send good people to hell. The problem is there's no such thing as a good person. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says that we have all gone our own way. We're all bad, and we all seek basically glory for ourselves. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, doing what suits us. Surely, though, there's got to be another way. You can't just give us that and then not give us a second chance. After all, God, aren't you a God of second chances? Yes, but not post-mortem. And I can guarantee you he's given you more than two or three or a thousand or a million chances to hear the good news, repent and believe in the gospel in our lifetime. But church history tells us that we have struggled with this reality over the centuries, and we have created extra-biblical doctrines to help comfort us, and I would say they are no comfort at all. And the most prevalent doctrine that is a false doctrine is the doctrine of purgatory. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm a recovering Catholic, that's what I grew up with, and this is a very difficult reality, because anytime you start wrestling with this kind of stuff, there's all sorts of deeper emotions that are rising up within you. Stay with me. I'm with you. Stay with me. Purgatory basically believes this, that you die before being fully forgiven for your lesser sins, and your soul must undergo a further purification before entering heaven. So your friends or your family have to pray for you or give money to the church to purify your soul to get you out of purgatory. Okay, if you've not ever heard that before, millions of people believe this. And, and I, I just want to gently say this. It's heresy. And I don't say that lightly. I say that in view of what we just read of Revelation 14. If we get this wrong, we, we stay on the wrong side of judgment. Here's why. Purgatory is a place where you must be further purified for your sin. What that means if you just break that out logically, is that any other means by which we can do something to get God's love to accept us means that we are condemned. See, purgatory means that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough for your sins. So when he said it's finished on the cross and he paid for your sins fully, what purgatory really means is not really. You actually need to add a little bit more, a couple more pennies. He came up a little short on the change. Jesus' sacrifice then is not enough for our sins. If Jesus' sacrifice was not enough, then he, he was not God. And if Jesus is not God in the flesh dying on that cross, then he died for nothing and we are on our own abandoned to this. And other religions that view that we can get God's approval by good works. And friends, we cannot We've never been able to get his approval because of our goodness. He has only given us his approval because of the goodness of Jesus. That's the whole point of Jesus' coming. If we can add anything, one iota of righteousness to the death of Jesus on the cross, to his resurrection and ascension into heaven, if we can add a one iota of any of it, then Jesus is not fully who he said he was, and he did not do what he said he came to do. Instead, he is God in the flesh. 
He is the one who came for those who were in the darkness, John 3 would say, to give you and invite you and bring you out of darkness and bring you, Colossians 1 would say, into the kingdom of his wonderful son so that you would no longer have to serve Satan and sin and your flesh and the world, but instead now you serve the risen king of kings, Lord of Lord and Prince of Peace, and we need to hear the Prince of Peace more than ever in this day. That's who came to save Save us. There are no second chances, though. Not after death. It's something that we need to wrestle with in the here and now. So what do we do? Or more importantly, for those that are in heaven, for those that are followers of Jesus, our great hope stands in this. What are we going to be doing while we're in heaven? Three things that I'm going to, again, answer according to Scripture. We're going to be worshiping. We're going to be worshiping Jesus. Revelation 7 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Jesus, clothed in white robes. That's that's a picture of our righteousness because of the Lamb, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels, see, we're not them, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, who knows what they are, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Can you say here and now that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, who is the Lamb? It's His. It's not mine. It's His, and He graciously would give it to those who would believe and follow. Hey, friends, if your picture of heaven revolves around your favorite hobby, or your favorite family member, you're going to be disappointed when you get there. Are y'all still here? Feels like I just walked into like a, a vapor. It's, it, it, it's, it's going to be a disappointment if we center our lives around something else. The point of the Christian life is to worship Jesus, and this will not change in heaven. It will be cranked to 11 for all my Spinal Tap friends. Worshiping Jesus will be cranked all the way to 11. It won't be on anything else. Would you want heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Are your thoughts on heaven centered around worshiping Jesus? There's been this, I don't know what it is, but there's been this thing that's like, well, when you get to heaven, you know, it's not gonna be all about worshiping Jesus. Yes, it is. It's gonna be all about worshiping Jesus, but that won't only mean singing. It might just be declaring that salvation is yours, not mine. You can do with it what you want, O sovereign and good king. We will be worshiping the lamb. Second thing we'll be doing is we will be watching what goes on on the earth. And now I just freaked some of you out. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this, Therefore, I'm going to explain the therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Who is this great cloud of witnesses? If you read Hebrews, what you'd find in Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith. And who is mentioned about the great cloud of witnesses watching us run our race, none less than Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, Moses, Moses and Moses and all the Old Testament believers and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets. And then it says others. So grandma's watching. 
Mom and dad are watching if they believed. What are we doing? They're rooting us on to run our race. Again, used to think that they just were in heaven and they got more important things to do. But the Bible would say that they're watching us, rooting us on, calling for our holiness in life, saying, man, you keep going after Jesus. It doesn't matter what gets in front of you. I can see that it's going to be worth it. You keep going. doesn't mean we pray to them. No, instead, it means we acknowledge their presence and as I was talking about this with a friend this week, he's like, man, does that mean like somebody's watching me do bad stuff? Yeah, his name is Jesus. He's always been watching. But he's also celebrating when we actually do overcome by the blood of the lamb these sins, these difficulties that come our way. We are going to be watching, rooting. That gives me great, great comfort. I got relatives that I'm sure are in the faith that I have no idea what their names are. They will greet me one day and be like, dude, I've been watching you and rooting for you. Remember that time when you thought it was going to go this way and then it went this way? I was, I was praying, man. It was awesome. All right, cool. The last thing, though, may not be as cool. We will worship. We will watch. We will have an idea and an eye on the earth from heaven we will not just watch, though, with that eye on heaven and that eye on the earth. We will also want. Now, this is where our sensibilities are starting to get challenged a little bit. Revelation 6 says that we will want something. Even in heaven, we will want something. Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says, I saw under the altar, again, this is during tribulation time, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, a.k.a. the martyrs, those that have died for their faith, died to ensure that we have the word of God that we have, died to ensure that we believe some things about baptism and the Lord's Supper, those that have gone to uh, hard to reach places and truly laid their lives down for the glory of God. Those people underneath the altar, and in verse 10 it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, look at what they're saying, you're in control, Lord, you're holy, you're good, and you're true, but how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They will be praying to the Lamb and asking Him, how long until you avenge us? There's a wanting there. Would you come back? Would you make it right? Would you execute justice on the earth? That even in heaven, there's something incomplete about it until Jesus comes back, which we'll talk about next week. That they were given a white robe. So look at what Jesus does. Then they were given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God knows there will be suffering. God knows there will be suffering. He says, look, I could come back right now, but there are many more that will be killed. They will suffer and i got to wait for that number to find its completion according to my sovereign, good, and perfect will. Keep trusting. Rest. I'm in control. See, heaven will be greater than we ever imagined, but we will still long for Jesus to make everything right on the earth with this new heavens and the new earth and the second coming of Jesus. And we'll talk about more about that again next week. If that feels you, makes you feel uh, kind of uncomfortable, as it does for me, Let's get into this final question. How does this affect how we live here and now? 
few things I want to put before you as we close. We need to question our assumptions about who we think God is and what we think he should be like. All of us in this room would read the scriptures and we would go, he can't be doing that. That can't be what happened. Surely he must have meant something different. We all have read the scriptures. If we have read the scriptures, you will be encountered with that reality. We must question our assumptions about the way that we think God should do things because, again, as Oscar prayed, he is infinite and we are but a vapor. He is uh, infinite and we are finite in our understanding of how he wants to run things. We may have questions and assumptions about how he should operate, about who he should have mercy on and who he should send to hell and why. But what do you do when you don't, dis- when you don't agree with God? What do you do when you disagree? It's going to hit you at some point. What do you do when you don't agree with how God does things? What will you do with your opinion, with your standard of how he sends people to hell or why he sends people to heaven? Most people have a hard time with a God who sends people to hell, but we have no issue with the God who extends mercy to those that don't deserve it. Why do we pick and choose based upon what suits us? How do we do this, and what are we supposed to do as a result? Why do we do that? God oftentimes doesn't do things the way that I would prefer it. Every time I suffer, I think, why are you doing this? What do we do in those moments? Do we demand that our way get done? Will we walk away because he does things differently than we would if we were God? And isn't that the point? I wouldn't do things like that if I were you. To which I say, praise God that you are not him. Praise God that I'm not him. I would not extend mercy on my enemies. Which, by the way, it's tend to change with the, you know, what COVID does. No. we got to question our assumptions. That's number one. Number two, trust in God. A deeper trust in God is what God is calling all of us to. His ways are better than our ways. And we just sang, he is all together Good. Look at Isaiah 55. You don't have to turn there. It's going to come up. 55, verse 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, which I think is pretty high, so are my ways higher than your ways. They're not just different. They're higher. They're better than your ways. And my thoughts better than than your thoughts. Everything that comes from our God, including his judgment of those who have never heard the gospel, who are really good people but don't believe in Jesus, is good and right and, ju- and just. Because God is the potter and we are his clay. Look, this is our hope that we're not in control. This is our hope that a good and sovereign God does, is the author of salvation, not us. That, that all the suffering, all the despair, all the, the murder hornets that could come and get us, that God is in control of all these things because the alternative is that he's not. And then what hope do we have in our own goodwill and good works or in the goodness and in the work of the God who came for sinners See, he is the potter, we are the clay. And so, again, we question our assumptions. We trust in a good, just, right, uh, and present God. And then we take personal holiness as serious as Jesus took it, right? In Mark 9, he says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. That's pretty serious. 
It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of, with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus is using hyper, hyperbolic statements to make the point, nothing is more important than your pursuit of Jesus. We take personal holiness as serious as Jesus took it. And then finally, this is what we do, Christians. This is what we do, brothers and sisters. We get to work. We get to work showing God's grace to God's people, as it says in 1 Peter. It says, the end of all things is at hand. That's, that's alarming. What do we do? What do we do, Peter, if the end of all things is at hand, including this sermon? What do we do? He says, be self-controlled. You want to know what you do when the end of all things is at hand? Don't freak out. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Your prayers are going to be out of whack if you freak out. You're going to be praying for the wrong things. You're going to be worried about the wrong things. Don't freak out. And then he goes on. Above all, now above not freaking out, is this. Keep Loving one another earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. You believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that as we end a very heavy sermon about heaven and hell? We believe that, that, that above all, we are called to overlook the sins of our brothers and our sisters because that's the kind of love with which God loves us. So they don't agree with you on Black Lives Matter? Love them. They don't agree with you on politics? Doesn't matter. You know what you're not going to be doing around the throne room? Talking about Donald Trump. Or Joe Biden. That's not going to happen. The vote's been cast. Jesus is king. He cast it for himself. And we are here to worship him forever and ever. So let's get our minds straight here. And by the way, that's me above all loving you. I told you all I was afraid of you all before. I ain't afraid of you all now, at least not today. we got to be able to get this right and above all love one another, especially when they disagree with you online and here in person about what masks do or what they don't do. I mean, we could keep going down the line on whether or not you actually believe the forecasters if there's a hurricane in the Gulf. Seems to me everybody seems to be okay with that news, that there actually is a hurricane in the Gulf. Everybody's ascribing to that. But one thing that we disagree with, oh, they're fake. We're good with that part, but not that part. We need not pick and choose the good news of Jesus. We believe in it. We follow it, even when it's discomforting for us. And may we get busy following him and not whatever else comes across our newsfeed and pollutes our mind. I love y'all. I love us as a church. My hope, we're, we all, like, I can't tell you how many times we've had this conversation about unity. Unity. We've got to be unified. Got to be unified. Cool. Let's do it. Let's put this above us. Let's put Jesus before us, and let's follow him like Hebrews 12 says, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, while all those that have died before us root us on to keep running that race, to keep the faith, to keep fighting the good fight, because that's what we're called to be about. Now, enter into those heavy and hard places, but do so with the sword of the Spirit. Do so with all the things that Ephesians talks about, and do so above all, overlooking sin. Because that's the way Jesus loves us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.
Thank you for your love. Father, help us. Father, we're grateful for this word that you've put together for us. We would have no hope without the steady and steadfast word of our God, which is true and right and useful and inspired, coming from the very God who created the heavens and the earth and will take out the heavens and the earth one day. That's our hope. You say, you say, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So we stand today and every day, Lord. May that be our declaration that we stand today and every day on the word of the Lord. It's our only footing that isn't a bunch of sand that's going to sink. It's the only footing that's steady, that's foundational, that helps us in these days and in any days ahead. Would you help us? You are our hope. And though we may fall, though we may sin, you have great mercy on us. You say you're rich in mercy. You're not poor in mercy. You're rich in mercy, and you pour it out on all of us. All of us who would believe in your son Jesus who came for us, died for us, suffered greatly for us, put in a grave for us, rose for us, and ascended to rule and reign forever and ever. And so it's to that king, it's to that spotless lamb that we pray and we sing. In your name we pray, O Lord. Amen.